0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the AI Alignment Podcast. I'm Lucas Perry, and today we'll be speaking with Andres gomez Emilson and Mike Johnson from the Qualia Research Institute. In this episode, we discuss the Qualia Research Institute's mission and core philosophy, we get into the differences between and arguments for and against functionalism and Qualia realism, we discuss definitions of consciousness, how consciousness might be causal, We explore Mars levels of analysis. We discuss their symmetry theory of valence. We also get into identity and consciousness and the world, the is-ought problem, what this all means for AI alignment and building beautiful futures, and then end on some fun bits exploring the potentially large amounts of qualia hidden away in cosmological events, and whether or not our universe is something more like heaven or hell. And remember, if you find this podcast interesting or useful, remember to like, comment, subscribe, and follow us on your preferred listening platform. You can continue to help make this podcast better by participating in a very short survey linked in the description of wherever you might find this podcast. It really helps. Andres is a consciousness researcher at QRI and is also the co-founder and president of the Stanford Transhumanist Association. He has a master's in computational psychology from Stanford. Mike is executive director at QRI and is also a co-founder. He is interested in neuroscience, philosophy of mind, and complexity theory. And so, without further ado, I give you Mike Johnson and Andres gomez Emilson. So, Mike and Andres, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited about this conversation, and there's definitely a ton for us to
1: get into here. Thank you so much for uh, having us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, glad to be here.
0: Let's start off just talking to provide some background about the Qualia Research Institute. If you guys could explain a little bit your perspective of the mission and base philosophy and vision that you guys have at QRI, if you could share that, that would be great.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like one important point is there's some people that think that really what matters might have to do with performing particular types of algorithms or achieving external goals in the world. Broadly speaking, we tend to focus on experience as the source of value. And if you kind of assume that experience is a source of value, then really mapping out what is a set of possible experiences, what are their computational properties, and above all, how good or bad they feel seems kind of like an ethical and theoretical priority to actually make progress on how to systematically figure out what it is that we should be doing i just add to that, this thing called consciousness
2: seems pretty confusing and strange. We kind of think of it as pre paradigmatic, much like alchemy. Our vision for kind of what we're doing is to systematize it and to do to consciousness research what chemistry did to alchemy.
0: To sort of summarize this, you guys are attempting to be very clear about phenomenology. You want to provide a sort of formal structure for understanding and also being able to infer phenomenological states in people. So, you guys are realists about consciousness.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: Let's go ahead and lay some conceptual foundations. On your website, you guys sort of describe QRI's full stack. So the kinds of metaphysical and philosophical assumptions that you guys are holding to while you're on this endeavor to mathematically capture consciousness.
2: So I would say full stack talks about how we do philosophy of mind, we do neuroscience, and we're just getting into neurotechnology with the thought that, yeah, if you have a better theory of consciousness, you should be able to have a better theory about the brain. And if you have a better theory about the brain, you should be able to build cooler stuff than you could otherwise. But starting with the philosophy, there's this conception of qualia formalism, the idea that phenomenology can be precisely represented mathematically. We sort of borrow the goal from Giulio Tononi's IIT. We don't necessarily agree with the specific math involved, but the goal of constructing a mathematical object that is isomorphic to a system's phenomenology would be sort of the correct approach if you want to formalize phenomenology. And then from there, one of the big questions in how you even start is, what's the simplest starting point? And here, I think one of our big innovations that is not seen at any other research group is we've started with emotional valence pain and pleasure. We think these are not only very ethically important, but also just literally the easiest place to start reverse engineering.
0: Right. And so this view is also colored by physicalism and qualia structuralism and valence realism. Could you explain some of those things in a non-jargony way?
2: Sure. formalism is this idea that math is the right language to talk about qualia in and that we can get a precise answer. This is another way of saying that we're realists about consciousness, much as people can be realists about electromagnetism. We're also valence realists This sort of refers to how we believe emotional valence, or pain and pleasure, the goodness or badness of an experience. We think this is a natural kind. This concept carves reality at the joints. We have some further thoughts on how to define this mathematically as well.
0: So you guys are physicalists. You think that basically the causal structure of the world is best understood by physics, and that consciousness was sort of always part of the game engine of the universe from the beginning ontologically, it was basic and always there in the same sense that the other forces of nature were already in the game engine since the beginning.
2: Yeah, I would say so. I personally like the frame of dual aspect monism, but I would also step back a little bit and say there's sort of two attractors in this discussion. One is the physicalist attractor, and that's QRI. Another would be the functionalist slash computationalist attractor. I think a lot of AI researchers are in this attractor. And this is a pretty deep question of if we want to try to understand what value is or what's really going on, or if we want to try to reverse engineer phenomenology, do we pay attention to bits or atoms? What's more real, bits or atoms?
0: That's an excellent question. Scientific reductionism here, I think, is very interesting. Could you guys go ahead and unpack, though, the skeptic's position of your view and sort of broadly adjudicate the merits of each view?
1: Maybe a really important frame here is called a Mars Levels of Analysis. David Maher was a cognitive scientist, wrote a really influential book in the 80s called On Vision, where he basically creates a schema for how to understand knowledge about, in this particular case, how we actually make sense of the world visually. The framework goes as follows. You have three ways in which you can describe a information processing system. First of all, the computational slash behavioral level. What that is about is understanding the input-output mapping of an information processing system. Part of it is also understanding the runtime complexity of the system and under what conditions it's able to perform its actions. Here, an analogy would be with uh, an abacus, for example. On the computational-behavioral level, what an abacus can do is add, subtract, multiply, divide, and if you're really creative, you can also exponentiate and do other interesting things. Then you have the algorithmic level of analysis, which is a little bit more detailed and, in a sense, more constrained. What the algorithm level of analysis is about is figuring out what are the internal representations and possible manipulations of those representations such that you get the input-output mapping described by the first layer. And here you have an interesting relationship where understanding the first layer doesn't fully constrain the second one. That is to say, there are many systems that have the same input-output mapping, but that under the hood uses different algorithms. In the case of the abacus, an algorithm might be something whenever you want to add a number, you just push a bed. Whenever you're done with a row, you push all of the beds back, and then you add a bed in the row underneath. And finally, you have the implementation level of analysis. And that is, what is the system actually made of? How is it constructed? All of these different levels ultimately also map onto different theories of consciousness. And that is basically where in the stack you associate consciousness or being or, quote unquote, what matters. So, for example, behaviorists in the 50s, they may associate consciousness, if they give any credibility to that term, with the behavioral level. They don't really care what's happening inside as long as you have extended pattern of reinforcement learning over many iterations. What matters is basically how you're behaving, and that's the crux of who you are. A functionalist will actually care about what algorithms you're running, like how is it that you're actually transforming the input into the output. Functionalists generally do care about, for example, brain imaging. They do care about the high level algorithms that the brain is running and generally will be very interested in figuring out these algorithms and generalize them in fields like machine learning and digital neural networks and so on. And a physicalist will associate consciousness at the implementation level of analysis, how the system is physically constructed has bearings on what is it like to be that system.
0: So you guys haven't said that this was your favorite approach but if people are familiar with David Chalmers these seem to be the easy problems right and functionalists are sort of interested in just the easy problems and some of them will actually just try to explain consciousness away right Yeah
2: I would say so and I think to try to condense some of the criticism we have of functionalism I would claim that it looks like a theory of consciousness and can feel like a theory of consciousness, but it may not actually do what we need a theory of consciousness to do, specify which exact phenomenological states are present.
0: Is there not some sort of conceptual partitioning that we need to do between functionalists who believe in qualia or consciousness and those that are illusionists or want to explain it away or think that it's a myth?
2: I think that there is that partition. And I guess there is a question of how principled the partition can be, or whether if you sort of chase the ideas down as far as you can, the partition sort of collapses. Either consciousness is a thing that is real in some fundamental sense, and I think you can get there with physicalism, or consciousness is more of a process, a leaky abstraction. I think functionalism sort of naturally tugs in that direction. For example, uh, Brian Tomasik has sort of followed this line of reasoning and come to the conclusion of analytic functionalism, which is kind of trying to explain away consciousness.
0: What is your guys' working definition of consciousness, and what does it mean to say that consciousness is real?
2: It is a word that's kind of overloaded. It's used in many contexts. I would frame it as what it feels like to be something. And something is conscious if there is something it feels like to be that thing.
1: It's important also to highlight some of its properties. As Mike points out, consciousness is used in many different ways. (laughs) There's kind of like eight definitions for the word consciousness. And honestly, all of them are really interesting. Some of them are more fundamental than others. And we tend to focus on the more fundamental side of the spectrum for the word. A sense that would be very not fundamental would be consciousness in the sense of social awareness or something like that we actually think of consciousness much more in terms of qualia. What is it like to be something? What is it like to exist? Some of the key properties of consciousness are as follows. I mean, first of all, we we do think it exists. Second, in some sense, it has causal power in the sense that the fact that we are conscious matters for evolution. Evolution made us conscious for a reason, that it's actually doing some computational legwork that would be maybe possible to do, but just not as efficient or not as conveniently as it is possible with consciousness. Then also you have the property of qualia, the fact that we can experience sights and colors and tactile sensations and thought experiences and emotions and so on. And all of these seem like completely different worlds, and in a sense, they are, but they have the property that they can be part of a unified experience that can experience color at the same time as experiencing sound. And in that sense, those different types of sensations, we describe them as to the category of consciousness because they can be experienced together. And finally, you have unity the fact that you have the capability of experiencing many qualia simultaneously. That's generally a very strong claim to make, but we think you need to acknowledge and take seriously its unity.
0: What are your guys' intuition pumps for thinking why consciousness exists as a thing? Why is there qualia?
1: I mean, there's like the metaphysical question of why consciousness exists to begin with. That's something I would like to punt for the time being. There's also the question of why was it recruited for information processing purposes in animals? The intuition here is that the various contrasts that you can have within experience can serve a computational role. So there may be a very deep reason why color qualia or visual qualia is used for information processing associated with sight and why tactile qualia is associated with information processing useful for touching and making haptic representations. And that might have to do with the actual map of how the qualia values are related to each other. Obviously, you have all of these edge cases, people who are synesthetic, they may open their eyes and they experience sounds associated with colors, and people tend to think of those as abnormal. I would flip it around and say that we are all synesthetic, it's just that the synesthesia that we have in general is very evolutionarily adaptive. The reason why you experience colors when you open your eyes is that that type of qualia is really well suited to represent geometrically a projective space. That's something that naturally comes out of representing the world with a sensory apparatus like eyes. That doesn't mean that there aren't other ways of doing it. It's possible that you could have an offshoot of humans that whenever they open their eyes, they experience sound and they use that very well to represent the visual world. But we may very well be in a local maxima of how different types of qualia are used to represent and do certain types of computations in a very well-suited way. That's kind of like the intuition behind why we're conscious is that all of these different contrasts in the structure of the relationship of possible qualia values has computational implications and there's actual ways of using these contrasts in very computationally effective ways.
0: So just to channel of the functionalist here, wouldn't he just say that everything you just said about qualia could be fully reducible to input-output and algorithmic information processing? So why do we need this extra property of qualia?
1: I mean, the, there's this article, I believe, is by Brian Tomasik that basically says you know, flavors of consciousness are flavors of computation. It might be very useful to do that exercise, where basically you identify color qualia is just a certain type of computation. And it may very well be that the geometric structure of color is actually just a particular algorithmic structure, that whenever you have a particular type of algorithmic information processing, you get this geometric state space. In the case of color, that's a Euclidean three-dimensional space. In the case of tactile or smell, it might be a much more complicated space. But then it's, in a sense, implied by the algorithms that we run. There is a number of good arguments there. The general approach to how to tackle them is that when it comes down to actually defining what algorithms a given system is running, you will hit a wall when you try to formalize exactly how to do it. So one example is how do you determine the scope of an algorithm? When you're analyzing a physical system and you're trying to identify what algorithm it is running, are you allowed to basically contemplate a thousand atoms? Are you allowed to contemplate a million atoms? Where is a natural boundary for you to say, whatever is inside here can be part of the same algorithm, but whatever it's outside of it can't. And there really isn't a frame invariant way of making those decisions. On the other hand, if you associate qualia with actual physical states, There is a frame-invariant way of describing what the system is. So a couple of years ago, I posted a piece giving a critique
2: of functionalism. And one of the examples that I brought up was, if I have a bag of popcorn and I shake the bag of popcorn, did I just torture someone? Did I just run a whole brain emulation of some horrible experience? Or did I not? There's not really an objective way to determine which algorithms a physical system is objectively running. So this is a kind of an unanswerable question from the perspective of functionalism. Whereas with the physical theory of consciousness,
1: it would have a clear answer. Another metaphor here is, let's say you're at a park enjoying an ice cream. In this system that I created that has, let's say, isomorphic algorithms to whatever is going on in your brain, The particular algorithms that your brain is running in that precise moment within a functionalist paradigm maps onto a metal ball rolling down one of the paths within this machine in a straight line, not touching anything else. So there's actually not much going on. According to functionalism, that would have to be equivalent, and it would actually be generating your experience. Now, the weird thing there is that you could actually break the machine, you could do a lot of things, and the behavior of the ball would not change. Meaning that within functionalism, to actually understand what a system is doing, you need to understand the counterfactuals of the system. You need to understand what would the system be doing if the input had been different. And all of a sudden you end with this very, very gnarly problem of defining, well, how do you actually objectively decide what is the boundary of the system? If in some of these particular states that allegedly are very complicated, the system looks extremely simple and you can remove a lot of parts without actually modifying its behavior, then that casts in question whether there is a objective boundary, any non-arbitrary boundary that you can draw around the system and say, yeah, this is equivalent to what's going on in your brain right now. This has a very heavy bearing on the binding problem. The binding problem, for those who haven't heard of it, is basically how is it possible that a hundred billion neurons, just because they're school bound, spatially distributed, how is it possible that they simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? As opposed to, for example, neurons in your brain and neurons in my brain contributing to a unified experience. You hit a lot of problems like what is the speed of propagation of information for different microstates within the brain? I'll leave it at that for the ending.
0: I would just like to be careful about this intuition here that experience is unified. I think that the intuition pump for that is direct phenomenological experience, like experience seems unified, but experience also seems a lot of different ways that aren't necessarily descriptive of reality, right?
1: You can think of it as different levels of sophistication where you may start out with a very naive understanding of the world where you confuse your experience for the world itself. A very large percentage of people perceive the world, and in a sense, think that they are experiencing the world directly. Whereas all the evidence indicates that actually you're experiencing an internal representation. You can go and dream, you can hallucinate, you can enter interesting meditative states, and those don't map to external states of the world. There's this transition that happens when you realize that in some sense, you're experiencing a world simulation created by your brain. And of course, you're you're fooled by it in countless ways. Especially when it comes to emotional things, that we look at a person and we might have an intuition of what type of person that person is, and we're not careful, we can confuse our intuition or we can confuse our feelings with truth, as if we were actually able to sense their soul, so to speak, rather than, hey, I'm running some complicated models on people space and trying to carve out who they are. There's definitely a lot of ways in which experience is very deceptive. But here I would actually make an important distinction. When it comes to intentional content, and intentional content is basically what the experience is about. For example, you're looking at a chair, there's the quality of chairness, the fact that you understand the meaning of chair and so on. That is usually a very deceptive part of experience. There's another way of looking at experience that I would say is not deceptive, which is the phenomenal character of experience, how it presents itself. You can be deceived about basically what the experience is about, but you cannot be deceived about how you're having the experience, how you're experiencing it. You can infer based on a number of experiences that the only way for you to even actually experience a given phenomenal object is to incorporate a lot of that information into a unified representation. But also, if you just pay attention to your experience, that you can simultaneously place your attention in two spots of your visual field and make them harmonized. That's a phenomenal character. And I would say that there's a strong case to be made to not doubt that property.
0: I'm trying to do my best to (laughs) channel the functionalist. I think he or she would say, okay, so what? That's just more information processing and I'll bite the bullet on the binding problem. I still need some more time to figure that out. So what? It seems like these people who believe in qualia have an even tougher job of trying to explain this extra spooky quality in the world. that's different from all the other physical phenomena that science has gone into. It also seems to like violate Occam's razor or a principle of lightness where one's metaphysics or ontology would want to assume the least amount of extra properties or entities in order to try to explain the world. I'm just really trying to tease out your best arguments here for qualia realism, as we do have this current state of things in AI alignment, where most people, it seems, would either try to explain away consciousness, would say it's an illusion, or they're anti-realist about qualia.
2: That's a really good question. Really good frame and i would say our strongest argument revolves around predictive power just like centuries ago you could absolutely be a skeptic about shall we say electromagnetism realism and you could say yeah i mean there's this thing co- we call static and we there's this thing we call lightning and there's this thing we call lodestones or magnets But all these things are distinct, and to think that there's some sort of unifying frame, some sort of deep structure of the universe that would tie all these things together and highly compress these phenomena, that's crazy talk. And so this is a viable position today to say that about consciousness, that it's not yet clear whether consciousness has deep structure, but we're assuming it does, and we think that unlocks a lot of predictive power We should be able to make predictions that are both more concise and compressed and crisp than others. And we should be able to make predictions that no one else can.
0: So what is the most powerful here about what you guys are doing is that the specific theories and assumptions which you take are falsifiable. Yes. If we can make predictive assessments of these things which are either leaky abstractions or are qualia, how would we even then be able to sort of arrive at a realist or anti-realist view about qualia?
2: So one frame on this is it could be that one could explain a lot of things about observed behavior and implicit phenomenology through a purely functionalist or computationalist lens. But maybe for a given system, it might take 10 terabytes. And if you can get there in a much simpler way, if you can explain it in terms of three elegant equations instead of 10 terabytes, then it wouldn't be proof that there exists some sort of crystal clear, deep structure at work. But it would be very suggestive.
1: Mars levels of analysis are pretty helpful here where a functionalist might actually be very skeptical of consciousness mattering at all, because they would say, hey, if you're identifying consciousness at the implementation level of analysis, how could that have any bearing on how we are talking about, how we understand the world, how we behave, since the implementation level is kind of epiphenomenal from the point of view of the algorithm. How can an algorithm know its own implementation? All it can maybe figure out its its own algorithm, and its identity would be constrained to its own algorithmic structure. But that's not quite true. In fact, there is bearings on one level of analysis onto another. Meaning in in some cases, the implementation level of analysis doesn't actually matter for the algorithm, but in in some cases it does. So if you're implementing a computer, let's say with uh, water, you have the option of maybe implementing a, a Turing machine with water buckets. And in that case, okay, the implementation level of analysis goes out the window in terms of it doesn't really help you understand the algorithm. But if how you're using water to implement algorithms is by basically creating this system of adding waves in buckets of different shapes with different resonant modes, then the, the implementation level of analysis actually matters a whole lot for what algorithms are kind of like finely tuned to be very effective in that substrate in the case of consciousness and how we behave, we do think properties of the substrate have a lot of bearings on what algorithms we actually move A functionalist should actually start caring about consciousness if, it's, if the properties of consciousness makes the algorithms more efficient, more powerful.
0: But what if qualia and consciousness are substantive, real things, but what if the epiphenomenalist is true and it's kind of like smoke rising from computation and it doesn't have any causal efficacy?
2: To offer kind of a reframe on this, I like this frame of dual aspect monism better. There seems to be an implicit value judgment on epiphenomenalism. It's uh, seen as this sort of very bad thing if a theory implies qualia are epiphenomenal. Just to put cards on the table, I think Andres and I differ a little bit on how we see these things, although I think our ideas also mesh up well. But I would say that under the frame of something like dual aspect monism, that there's actually one thing that exists, and it has sort of two projections, or shadows, and one projection is the physical world, such as we can tell, and then the other projection is phenomenology, subjective experience. These are just two sides of the same coin, and neither is epiphenomenal to the other. It's literally just two different angles on the same thing. And in that sense, qualia values and physical values are really talking about the same thing when you get down to it.
0: Okay. So does this all begin with this sort of move that Descartes makes, where he tries to sort of produce a perfectly rational philosophy or worldview by making no assumptions and then starting with experience? Is this sort of the kind of thing that you guys are doing in taking consciousness or qualia to sort of be something real or, or serious?
2: I can just speak for myself here, but I would say my intuition comes from two places. One is sort of staring deep into the beast of functionalism and sort of realizing that it doesn't lead to a clear answer. My model is that it just is this thing that looks like an answer, but can never, even in theory, be an answer to how consciousness works. And if we deny consciousness, then we're left in a kind of a tricky place with ethics and moral value. It also seems to leave value on the table in terms of predictions, that if we can assume consciousness is real and make better predictions, then that's evidence that we should do that.
0: Isn't that just an argument that it would be potentially epistemically useful for ethics if we could have predictive power about consciousness?
2: Yeah, so let's assume that it's a hundred years, or five hundred years, or a thousand years in the future, and we've finally cracked consciousness. We've finally solved it. My open question is: What does the solution look like? If we're functionalists, what does the solution look like? If we're physicalists, what does the solution look like? And we can expand this to ethics as well.
0: Just as a conceptual clarification, the functionalists are also physicalists, though, right?
1: There is two senses of the word physicalism here. So there's physicalism in the sense of kind of like a theory of the universe, that the behavior of matter and energy, what happens in the universe is exhaustively described by the laws of physics or future physics. There is also physicalism in the sense of understanding consciousness in contrast to functionalism. David Pierce, I think, like would describe it as non-materialist physicalist idealism. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a very close relationship between that phrasing and dual aspect monism. I can briefly unpack it. Basically, non-materialist is not saying that the stuff of the world is fundamentally unconscious. That's something that materialism claims, that what the world is made of is not conscious, is raw matter, so to speak. Physicalist, again, in the sense of the laws of physics exhaustively describe behavior. And idealist in the sense of what makes up the world is qualia, or consciousness. The big picture view is that the actual substrate of the universe, the quantum fields, are fields of qualia.
0: So, Mike? You were saying that in the future, when we potentially have a solution to the problem of consciousness, that in the end, the functionalist with algorithms and explanations of, say, all of the easy problems, all of the mechanisms behind the things that we call consciousness, you think that that project will ultimately fail?
2: I do believe that. And I guess my gentle challenge to functionalists would be to sketch out a vision of what a satisfying answer to consciousness would be, whether it's completely explaining it away for completely explaining it. If in 500 years you go to the local bookstore and you check out Consciousness 101, you just kind of flip through it, you look at the headlines and the, the chapter list and the pictures, what do you see? I think we have an answer as formalists, but I would be very interested in getting kind of the functional state on this.
0: All right. So you guys have this belief in the ability to formalize our understanding of consciousness. Is this actually contingent on realism or anti realism?
2: It is implicitly dependent on realism, that consciousness is real enough to be describable mathematically in a precise sense. And actually, that would be my definition of realism, that something is real if we can describe it exactly with mathematics and it is instantiated in the universe. I think the idea of connecting math and consciousness is very core to formalism.
0: What's particularly interesting here are that you're making falsifiable claims about phenomenological states. It's good and exciting that your symmetry theory of valence, which we can get into now, has falsifiable aspects. So do you guys want to describe here what your symmetry theory of valence is and how this fits in and is a consequence of your valence realism?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like one of the key places where this has bearings on is an understanding what is it that we actually want and what is it that we actually like and enjoy. That will be answered in an agent way. So basically, you think of agents as entities who spin out possibilities for what actions to take and then they have a way of sorting them by expected utility and then carrying them out. A lot of people might associate what we want or what we like or what we care about at that level, the agent level. Whereas we think actually the true source of value is more low level than that, that there's something else that we're actually using in order to implement agentive behavior. There's ways of experiencing value that are completely separated from agents. You don't actually need to be generating possible actions and to be evaluating them and enacting them for there to be value or for you to actually be able to enjoy something. So what we're examining here is actually what is a lower-level property that gives rise even to agentive behavior that underlies every other aspect of experience. This would be uh, valence, and specifically valence gradients. The general claim is that we are set up in such a way that we are basically climbing the valence gradient. This is not true in every situation, but it's mostly true, and it's definitely mostly true in animals. And then the question becomes, what implements valence gradients? And here perhaps the intuition is this extraordinary fact that things that have nothing to do with our evolutionary past, nonetheless can feel good or bad. So it's understandable that if you hear somebody scream, you may get nervous or anxious or fearful. If you hear somebody laugh, you may feel happy that makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. But why would the sound of the Bay Area rapid transit, the BART, which creates this very intense uh, screeching sound that is, is not even within like, the vocal range of humans. It's just completely bizarre, never encountered before in our evolutionary past. And nonetheless, it has an extraordinarily negative valence. That's kind of like a hint that valence has to do with patterns is not just goals and actions and utility functions, but the actual pattern of your experience may determine valence. The same goes for a sub-pack. It's this technology that basically renders sounds between 10 and 100 hertz, and some of them feel really good, some of them feel pretty unnerving, some of them are anxiety-producing. And it's like, why, why would that be the case? Especially when you're getting to types of input that have nothing to do with our evolutionary past. It seems that there's ways of triggering high and low valence states just based on the structure of your experience. The last example I'll give is very weird states of consciousness like meditation or psychedelics that seem to come with extraordinarily intense and novel forms of experiencing significance or a sense of bliss or pain. And again, they don't seem to have much semantic content per se, or rather the semantic content is not the core reason why they feel good or bad. It has to do more with a particular structure that they induce in experience.
2: There are many ways to talk about where pain and pleasure come from. We can talk about it in terms of neurochemicals, opioids, and dopamine. We can talk about it in terms of pleasure centers in the brain, in terms of goals and preferences and getting what you want. But all of these have counterexamples. All of these have some point that you can follow the thread back to, which will beg the question. And I think the only way to explain emotional balance, pain and pleasure, that doesn't beg the question is to explain it in terms of some patterns within phenomenology. Just intrinsically feel good and some intrinsically feel bad. To touch back on the formalism frame, this would be saying that if we have a mathematical object that is isomorphic, to your phenomenology, to what it feels like to be you, then some pattern or property of this object will refer to or will sort of intrinsically encode your emotional valence, how pleasant or unpleasant this experience is. That's kind of the valence formalism aspect that we've come to.
0: So given this sort of valence realism, the view is this intrinsic pleasure-pain axis of the world, and this is sort of challenging, I guess. David Pierce's view, that there are things in experience which are just clearly good-seeming or bad-seeming. Will McCaskill called these pre-theoretic properties we might ascribe to certain kinds of experiential aspects, like they're just good or bad. And so with this valence realism view, this potentiality and this goodness or badness whose nature is sort of self-intimatingly disclosed in the physics and in the world since the beginning, and now it's sort of unfolding and expressing itself more so, and the universe is sort of coming to life. And embedded somewhere deep within the universe's structure are these intrinsically good or intrinsically bad valences, which complex computational systems and maybe other stuff has access to.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I would perhaps emphasize that it's not only pre-theoretical, it's pre-agentive. You don't even need an agent for there to be valence.
0: Right. Okay. This is going to be a good point, I think, for getting into these other more specific hairy philosophical problems. Could you go ahead and sort of unpack a little bit more this view that pleasure or pain is self-intimatingly good or bad, that just by existing in experiential relation with the thing, its nature is disclosed? Brian Tomasik here, and I think functionalists would say, you know, there's just another reinforcement learning algorithm somewhere before that is just evaluating these phenomenological states. They're not intrinsically good or bad. That's just what it feels like to be the kind of agent who has that belief.
1: Sure. I mean, there's definitely many angles from which to see these. One of them is by basically realizing that liking, wanting, and learning are possible to dissociate. And in particular, you're going to have reinforcement without an associated positive valence. You can have also positive valence without reinforcement or learning. And generally, they are correlated, but they're different things. My understanding is a lot of people who make think of Valence as something we believe matters because we're the type of agent that has a utility function and a reinforcement function. If that was the case, we would expect Valence to melt away in states that are non-agentive. We wouldn't necessarily see it. And also that it would be intrinsically tied to intentional content, the aboutness of experience. A very strong counterexample is that somebody may claim that really what they truly want is to be academically successful or something like that. They think of the reward function as intrinsically tied to getting a degree or something like that. I would call that to some extent illusory, that if you actually look at how those preferences are being implemented, that deep down there would be valence gradients happening there. And one way to show this would be, let's say the person on their graduation day, you give them an opioid antagonist, the person will subjectively feel that the day is meaningless. You remove the pleasant cream of the experience that they were actually looking for, that they thought all along was tied in with intentional content, with the fact of graduating, but in fact it was the hedonic gloss that they were after. That's kind of like one intuition prompt there.
0: These core problem areas that you've identified in Principia Qualia, would you just sort of like to briefly touch on those?
2: Yeah, it's sort of trying to break the problem down into modular pieces with the idea that if we can decompose the problem correctly, then these sub problems become much easier than the overall problem. And if you collect all the solutions to the sub problem, then in aggregate, you get a full solution to the problem of consciousness. So I've sort of split things up into the metaphysics, the math, and the interpretation. The first question is, What metaphysics do you even start with? What ontology do you even try to approach the problem? And we've chosen the ontology of physics that sort of can objectively map onto reality in a way that computation cannot. And then there's this question of, okay, so you have your core ontology, in this case physics, and then there's this question of what counts? What actively contributes to consciousness? Do we look at electrons, electromagnetic fields, quarks? This is an unanswered question. We have hypotheses, but we don't have an answer. Moving into the math, conscious systems seem to have boundaries. Now, if something's happening inside my head, it can directly contribute to my conscious experience. But even if we put our heads together, literally speaking, your consciousness doesn't bleed over into mine. There seems to be a boundary. And so one way of framing this is the boundary problem. And one way of framing it is the binding problem. And these are sort of just two sides of the same coin. There's this big puzzle of how do you draw the boundary of a subjective experience? IIT is sort of set up to approach consciousness itself through this lens that has a certain style of answer, style of approach. We don't necessarily need to take that approach, but it's an intellectual landmark. Then we get into things like the state-space problem and the topology of information problem. If we figured out our basic ontology of what we think is a good starting point and of that stuff, what actively contributes to consciousness, and then we can figure out some principled way to draw a boundary around, okay, this is conscious experience A, and this is conscious experience B, and they don't overlap. So you have a bunch of information inside the boundary. Then there's this math question of how do you sort of rearrange it into a... Mathematical object that is isomorphic to what that stuff feels like. And again, IIT has an approach to this. We don't necessarily ascribe to the exact approach, but it's good to be aware of. There's also the interpretation problem, which is actually very near and dear to what QRI is working on. And this is the concept of if you had a mathematical object that represented what it feels like to be you, how would we even start to figure out what it meant?
0: This is also where the falsifiability comes in, right? If we have the mathematical object and we're able to formally translate that into phenomenological states, then people can self-report on predictions, right?
2: Yes. I mean, I don't necessarily fully trust self-reports as being the gold standard. I think maybe evolution is tricky sometimes and can lead to inaccurate self-reports, but at the same time, it's probably pretty good and it's the best we have for validating predictions. A lot of this gets easier if we assume that maybe we can be wrong in an absolute sense, but we're often pretty well calibrated to judge relative differences. Maybe you ask me how I'm doing on a scale of 1 to 10, and I say 7, and the reality is a 5. Maybe that's a problem, but at the same time, I like chocolate. And if you give me some chocolate and I eat it, that improves my subjective experience and i would expect us to be well calibrated in terms of evaluating whether something is better or worse
0: there's this view here though that the brain is not like a classical computer right that it is more like a resonant instrument
1: yeah maybe an analogy here could be pretty useful there's this researcher, William Sethares who basically figured out the way to quantify the mutual dissonance between pairs of notes. And it turns out that it's not very hard. All you need to do is add up the pairwise dissonance between every harmonic of each of the notes. And what that gives you is that if you take, for example, a major key and you compute the average dissonance between pairs of notes within that major key, it's going to be pretty good on average. And if you take the average dissonance of a minor key, it's going to be higher. So in a sense, what distinguishes a minor and a major key is in the combinatorial space of possible permutations of notes, how frequently are they dissonant versus consonant. That's, you know, like a very ground truth mathematical feature of a musical instrument. And that's going to be different from one instrument to the next. With that as a backdrop, we think of the brain and, in particular, valence in a very similar light. That the brain has natural resonant modes, and you know, emotions may seem externally complicated. When you're having a very complicated emotion and they ask you to describe it, it's almost like trying to describe a moment in a symphony. This very complicated composition, and how do you even go about it? But deep down, the reason why a particular frame sounds pleasant or unpleasant within music is ultimately tractable to the additive pairwise dissonance of all of those subharmonics. And likewise, for a given state of consciousness, we suspect that very similar to music, the average pairwise dissonance between the harmonics present on a given point in time will be strongly related to how unpleasant the experience is. These are electromagnetic waves, and it's not exactly like a static or it's not exactly a standing wave either, but it it gets really close to it. So basically what this is saying is there's this excitation inhibition wave function, and that happens statistically across macroscopic regions of the brain. And there's only a discrete number of ways in which that wave can fit an integer number of times in the brain. We'll give you a link to the actual visualizations for what this looks like. This is kind of like a concrete example. One of the harmonics with the lowest frequency is basically a a very simple one where each of your hemispheres are alternatingly more excited versus inhibited. So that would be a low frequency harmonic because it's this very spatially large wave and alternating pattern of excitation. Much higher frequency harmonics are much more detailed and obviously hard to describe But visually, generally speaking, the spatial regions that are activated versus inhibited are these very thin wave fronts. It's not a mechanical wave as such, it's an electromagnetic wave. So it would actually be the electric potential in each of these regions of the brain fluctuates. And within this paradigm, on any given point in time, you can describe a brain state as a weighted sum of all of its harmonics. And what that weighted sum looks like depends on your state of consciousness.
0: Sorry, I'm getting a little caught up here on enjoying resonant sounds, and then also the valence realism. The view isn't that all minds will enjoy resonant things, because happiness is like a fundamental valence thing of the world, and all brains who come out of evolution should probably enjoy a resonance.
2: It's less about the stimulus, it's less about the exact signal, and it's more about the effect of the signal on our brains. The resonance that matters, the resonance that counts, or the the harmony that counts, we could say, or in a precisely technical term, the consonants that counts, is the stuff that happens inside our brains. Empirically speaking, most signals that involve a lot of harmony create more internal consonants in these natural brain harmonics than, for example, dissonant stimuli. But the stuff that counts is inside the head, not the stuff that is going in our ears. And just to be clear about QRI move here, Selim has put forth this connectome-specific harmonic wave model, and what we've done is combined it with our symmetry theory of valence and said this is sort of a way of basically getting a Fourier transform of where the energy is in terms of frequencies of brain waves in a much cleaner way than has been available through EEG. Basically, we can evaluate this data set for harmony, How much harmony is there in a brain? And with the link to the symmetry theory of valence, then it should be a
1: very good proxy for how pleasant it is to be that brain. Wonderful. In this context, yeah, the symmetry theory of valence would be much more fundamental. There's probably many ways of generating states of consciousness that are, in a sense, completely unnatural, that are not based on the, the harmonics of the brain. But we suspect the bulk of the differences in states of consciousness would cash out in differences in brain harmonics because that's a very efficient way of modulating the symmetry of the state. Basically,
2: music can be thought of as a very sophisticated way to hack our brains into a state of greater consonance, greater harmony.
0: All right. People should check out your Principia Qualia, which is the work that you've done that captures a lot of this. Is there anywhere else that you'd like to refer people to for these specifics?
2: Principia Qualia covers the philosophical framework and the symmetry theory of balance. Andreas has written deeply about this connectome specific harmonic wave frame, and the name of that piece is Quantifying Bliss.
0: Great. I would love to be able to quantify bliss and instantiate it everywhere. Let's jump in here into a few problems and framings of consciousness that I'm just curious to see if you guys have any comments on. The first is what you call the real problem of consciousness, and the second one is what David Chalmers calls the meta-problem of consciousness. Would you like to go ahead and start off here with just this real problem of consciousness?
2: Yeah, so this kind of gets to something we were talking about previously. Is consciousness real or is it not? Is it something to be explained or to be explained away? This caches out in terms of is it something that can be formalized or is it intrinsically fuzzy? I'm calling this the real problem of consciousness, and a lot depends on the answer to this. There are so many different ways to approach consciousness, and hundreds, perhaps thousands, of different carvings of the problem. And psychism, you have dualism, you have non-materialist physicalism, and so on. And I think. Essentially, the core distinction, all of these theories sort of sort themselves into two buckets, and that's, is consciousness real enough to formalize exactly or not? This frame is perhaps the most useful frame to use to evaluate theories of consciousness.
0: And then there's a meta problem of consciousness, which is quite funny. It's basically like, why have we been talking about consciousness for the past hour? And what's all this stuff about qualia and happiness and sadness? Why do people make claims about consciousness? Why does it seem to us that there is maybe something like a hard problem of consciousness? Like, why is it that we experience phenomenological states? Why isn't everything going on with the lights off?
2: I think this is a very clever move by David Chalmers. It's a way to try to unify the field and get people to talk to each other, which is not so easy in the field. The meta problem of consciousness doesn't necessarily solve anything, but it tries to
1: inclusively start the conversation. A common move that people make here is all of these crazy things that we think about consciousness and talk about consciousness. That's just an information processing system modeling its own attentional dynamics. That's one illusionist frame. But even within a quillia realist, quillia formalist paradigm, you still have the question of why do we even think or self-reflect about consciousness, right? Like you could very well think of consciousness as being computationally relevant, the unity of consciousness and so on, but still lacking introspective access. You could have these complicated conscious information processing systems, but they don't necessarily self-reflect on the quality of their own consciousness. That property is important to model and make sense of. And we have a few formalisms that may give rise to some insight into how self-reflectivity happens. And in particular, how is it possible to model the entirety of your state of consciousness in a given phenomenal object? This ties in with the notion of a homunculus. If the overall valence of your consciousness is actually a signal traditionally used for fitness evaluation, detecting basically when are you in existential risk yourself or when there's like reproductive opportunities that you may be missing out on, that it makes sense for there to be a general thermostat of the overall experience where you can just look at it and you get a, a sense of the overall well-being of the entire experience added together in such a way that you experience them all at once. And I think like a lot of the puzzlement has to do with that internal self-model of the overall well-being of the experience, which is something that we are evolutionarily incentivized to actually summarize and be able to see at a glance.
0: So some people have a view where human beings are conscious and they assume everyone else is conscious, and they think that the only place for value to reside is within consciousness and that a world without consciousness is actually a world without any meaning or value. Even if we think that, say, philosophical zombies or people who are functionally identical to us but with no qualia or phenomenological states or experiential states, even if we think that those are conceivable, then it would seem that there would be no value in a world of p-zombies. So I guess my question is, why does phenomenology matter? Why does the phenomenological modality of pain and pleasure or valence have some sort of special ethical or experiential status, unlike qualia like red or blue? Why does red or blue not disclose some sort of intrinsic value in the same way that my suffering does or my bliss does or the suffering or bliss of
1: other people?
2: My intuition is also that consciousness is necessary for value. Nick Bostrom has this wonderful quote in Superintelligence that we should be wary of building a Disneyland with no children, some sort of technological wonderland that is filled with marvels of function, but doesn't have any subjective experience, doesn't have anyone to enjoy it, basically. I would just say that I think that most AI safety research is focused around making sure there is a Disneyland. Making sure, for example, we don't just get turned into something like paperclips. But there's this other problem, making sure there are children, making sure there are subjective experiences around to enjoy the future. And I would say that there aren't many live research threads on this problem. And I see QRI as a live research thread on how to make sure there is subjective experience in the future probably a can of worms there, but uh, <laughs> as to your
1: question about pain and pleasure, I may pass that to
2: my colleague Andreas.
1: Nothing terribly satisfying here. I mean, I, I would go with David Pierce's view that these properties of experience are self-intimating. And to the extent that you do believe in value, they will come up as the natural focal points for value, especially if you're allowed to basically probe the quality of your experience, where in many states, you believe that the reason why you like something is for its intentional content. Again, the case of graduating, or it could be the, the case of getting a promotion or one of those things that a lot of people associate with feeling great. But if you actually probe the quality of experience, you will realize that there is this component of it, which is its hedonic loss, and you can manipulate it directly, again, with things like opioid antagonists. And if the symmetry theory of valence is true, potentially also by directly modulating the consonants and dissonance of the brain harmonics, in which case the hedonic loss would change in peculiar ways. When it comes to consilience, when it comes to many different points of view agreeing on what aspect of the experience is what brings value to it, it seems to be the hedonic loss.
0: So, in terms of qualia and valence realism, would the causal properties of qualia be the thing that would show any arbitrary mind the self-intimating nature of how good or bad an experience is? And in the space of all possible minds, what is the correct epistemological mechanism for evaluating the moral status of experiential or qualitative states?
2: So... First of all, I would say that my focus so far has mostly been on describing what is and not what ought. I think that we can talk about valence without necessarily talking about ethics, but if we can talk about valence clearly, that certainly makes some questions in ethics and some frameworks in ethics make much more or less sense. So the better we can clearly describe and purely descriptively talk about consciousness, the easier I think a lot of these ethical questions get. I'm trying hard not to privilege any ethical theory. I want to talk about reality. I want to talk about what exists, what's real, and what the structure of what exists is. And I think if we succeed at that, then all these other questions about ethics and morality get much, much easier. I do think that there is an implicit should kind of wrapped up in questions about valence. But I do think that's another leap. You can accept that valence is real without necessarily accepting that kind of optimizing valence is an ethical imperative. I mean, I personally think, yes, it is very ethically important, but it is possible to take a purely descriptive frame to valence, that whether or not this also discloses as David Pierce has said, the utility function of the universe, that is another question and can be decomposed.
1: One frame here too is that we do suspect valence is going to be the thing that matters upon any mind if you probe it in the right way in order to achieve reflective equilibrium. There's this example of a talk a neuroscientist was giving at some point there was something off and everybody seemed to be a little bit anxious or irritated and nobody knew why. And then uh, one of the conference organizers suddenly came up to the presenter and did something to the microphone. And then everything sounded way better and everybody was way happier there was this very subtle hissing pattern caused by some malfunction of the microphone and it was making everybody irritated. They just didn't realize that was the source of the irritation. And when it got fixed, then, you know, everybody's like, oh, that's why I was feeling upset. We will find that to be the case over and over when it comes to improving valence. So like somebody in the year 2050 might come up to one of the Connectum specific harmonic wave clinics, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but if we put them through the scanner, we identify your 17th and 19th harmonic are in a state of dissonance. We cancel 17th to make it more clean. And then the person will say all of a sudden, like, yeah, <laughs> my problem is fixed. How did you do that? So I think it's gonna be a lot like that. That the things that puzzle us about why do I prefer these, why do I think this is worse will all of a sudden become crystal clear from the point of view of valence gradients objectively measured.
2: One of my favorite phrases in this context is what you can measure, you can manage. And if we can actually find the source of dissonance in a brain, then yeah, we can resolve it. And this could open the door for maybe honestly a lot of amazing things making the human condition just intrinsically better also maybe a lot of worrying things being able to directly manipulate emotions may not necessarily be socially positive on all fronts
0: yeah so i guess here we can begin to jump into uh, ai alignment and qualia So we're building AI systems, and and they're getting pretty strong, and they're going to keep getting stronger, potentially creating a superintelligence by the end of the century. And consciousness and qualia seems to be along the ride for now. So I'd I'd like to discuss a little bit here about more specific places in AI alignment where these views might inform it and direct
2: it. Yeah, I would share three problems of AI safety. There's the technical problem. How do you make a self-improving agent that is also predictable and safe? this is a very difficult technical problem, first of all, to even make the agent, but second of all, especially to make it safe, especially if it becomes smarter than we are. There's also the political problem. Even if you have the best technical solution in the world and a sufficiently good technical solution, doesn't mean that it will be put into action in a sane way if we're not in a reasonable political system. But I would say the third problem is what QRI is most focused on, and that's the philosophical problem. What are we even trying to do here? What is the optimal relationship between AI and humanity? And also a couple specific details here. First of all, I think nihilism is absolutely an existential threat. And if we can find some antidote to nihilism through some sort of advanced valence technology, that could be enormously helpful for reducing X risk. What
0: kind of nihilism are you talking about here, like nihilism about morality and meaning?
2: Yes, I would say so. And just personal nihilism that it feels like nothing matters, so why not do risky things?
0: Whose quote is it? The philosopher's question, like, should you just kill yourself? And that's sort of the yawning abyss of nihilism inviting you in.
1: Robert Camus. The only real philosophical question is whether to commit suicide. Whereas How I think of it is the real philosophical question is how to make love last, bringing value to the existence. And if you have value on tap, then the question of whether to kill yourself or not seems really nonsensical. For sure. We can also say that right now there aren't many
2: good shelling points for global coordination. People talk about having global coordination and building AGI would be a great thing, but we're a little light on the details of how to do that. If a clear, comprehensive, useful, practical understanding of consciousness can be built, then this may sort of embody or generate new shelling points that the larger world could self-organize around. If we can sort of give people a clear understanding of what is and what could be, then I think we will get a better future that actually gets built.
0: Yeah showing what is and what could be is immensely important and powerful. So moving forward with AI alignment as we're building these more and more complex systems, there's this needed distinction between unconscious and conscious information processing if we're interested in the morality and ethics of suffering and joy and other conscious states. How do you guys see the science of consciousness here actually being able to distinguish between unconscious and conscious information processing systems?
2: There are a few frames here. One is that, yeah, it does seem like the brain does some processing in consciousness and some processing outside of consciousness. And what's up with that? This could be sort of an interesting frame to explore in terms of avoiding things like mind crime in the AGI or AI space, that if there are certain computations which are painful, then don't do them in a way that would be associated with consciousness. It would be very good to have rules of thumb here for how to do that. And one interesting frame could be, in the future, we might not just have compilers which optimize for speed of processing or minimization of dependent libraries and so on, but could optimize for the valence of the computation on certain hardware. I mean, this, of course, gets into complex questions about computationalism, how hardware dependent this compiler would be, and so on. But I think it's it's an interesting and important long-term frame.
0: And so just illustrate here, I think, the ways in which solving or better understanding consciousness will inform AI alignment from present day until superintelligence and beyond.
2: I think there's a lot of confusion about consciousness and a lot of confusion about what kind of thing the value problem is in AI safety. And there are some sort of novel approaches on the horizon. I was speaking with Stuart Armstrong at The last EA Global and he had some great things to share about his sort of model fragments paradigm. And I think this is sort of the right direction. It's sort of understanding, yeah, human preferences are insane. (laughs) Just (laughs) they're not a consistent formal system.
0: Yeah, we contain multitudes.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yes, yes. And so first of all, understanding what generates them seems valuable. So there's this frame in AI safety called the complexity value thesis. I believe Eliezer came up with it in a post on Wrong. It's sort of this frame where human value is very fragile in that it can be thought of as a small area, perhaps even almost a point in a very high dimensional space, say a thousand dimensions. If we go any distance in any direction from this tiny point in this high dimensional space, then we quickly get to something that we wouldn't think of as very valuable. I mean, maybe if we leave everything the same and take away freedom, this paints a pretty sobering picture of how difficult AI alignment will be. And I think this is perhaps arguably the source of a lot of worry in the community. That not only do we need to make machines that won't just immediately kill us, but that will preserve our position in this very, very high dimensional space well enough that we sort of keep the same trajectory, and that possibly if we move at all, then we may enter a totally different trajectory that we, in 2019, wouldn't think of as having any value. So this problem becomes very, very intractable. And I would just say that there is an alternative frame. The phrasing that I'm playing around with here is, instead of the complexity of value thesis, the unity of value thesis. It could be that many of the things that we find valuable, eating ice cream, living in a just society, having a a wonderful interaction with a loved one, all these have sort of the same underlying neural substrate. And empirically this is what effective neuroscience is finding. Eating a chocolate bar activates the same brain regions as a transcendental religious experience. And so maybe there's some sort of elegant compression that can be made and that actually things aren't so starkly strict, we're not sort of this point in a super high dimensional space. And if we leave the point, then everything of value is trashed forever. But maybe there's some sort of convergent process that we can follow that we can essentialize. Okay, we can make this list of 100 things that humanity values, and maybe they all sort of have in common positive valence and positive. can sort of be reverse engineered. And to some people, this feels like a very scary, dystopic scenario. Don't knock it till you tried it. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of complexity here. One core frame that the idea of of formalism and valence realism can offer AI safety is that maybe the actual goal is somewhat different than the complexity of value thesis puts forward. Maybe the actual goal is different and, in fact, easier. I think this could directly inform how we spend resources on the problem space.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that there exists a uh, standing tension between this view of the complexity of all preferences and, and values that human beings have, and then the valence realist view, which says that you know what's ultimately good are certain experiential or hedonic states. I'm interested and curious about if the surveillance view is is true, whether it's all just going to turn into hedonium in the end.
2: (laughs) I'm personally a fan of continuity. I think that if we do things right, we'll have plenty of time to get things right. And also, if we do things wrong, then we'll have plenty of time for things to be wrong. So I'm personally not a fan of big unilateral moves. It's just getting back to this question of Can understanding what is help us? Clearly, yes.
0: I guess one view is we could say preserve optionality and learn what is. And then from there, hopefully, we'll be able to better inform oughts And with maintained optionality, we'll be able to choose the right thing. Yeah. But that will require, right, a cosmic level of coordination.
2: (laughs) Sure. An interesting frame here is whole brain emulation. So whole brain emulation is sort of a frame built around functionalism. And it's a seductive frame, I would say. If Holborn emulations wouldn't necessarily have the same qualia based on hardware considerations as the original humans, there could be some sort of weird lock in effects where if the majority of society turned themselves into pea zombies, <laughs> then it may be hard to sort of go back on that.
0: Yeah. All right. So we're getting to the end here. I appreciate all of this. You guys have been tremendous and I've really enjoyed this. I want to talk about identity in AI alignment, this sort of taxonomy that you've developed about open individualism and closed individualism and all of these other things. Would you like to touch on that and talk about implications here in, in AI alignment as you see it?
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. The taxonomy comes from Daniel Kolek, a philosopher and mathematician. It's a pretty good taxonomy. Basically, it's like open individualism. That's kind of like the view that a lot of meditators and mystics and people who take psychedelics often ascribe to, which is that we're all one consciousness. Another frame is that our true identity is the light of consciousness, so to speak. So it doesn't matter in what form it manifests. It's always the same fundamental ground of being. Then you have kind of the common sense view. It's called closed individualism. You start existing when you're born, you stop existing when you die, you're just this segment. Some religions actually extend that into the future or past with reincarnation or maybe with heaven. But there's this sense of ontological distinction between you and others, while at the same time, ontological continuity from one moment to the next within you. Finally, you have this view that's called empty individualism which is that you're just a, a moment of experience. That's fairly common among physicists and a lot of people who try to formalize consciousness. Often they converge on empty individualism. I think a lot of theories of ethics and rationality, like the, the veil of ignorance as a guide, or like how do you define rational decision-making as maximizing the expected utility of yourself as an agent, all of those seem to implicitly be based on closed individualism. And they were not necessarily questioning it very much. On the other hand, if this sense of individual identity, of close individualism, doesn't actually carve nature at its joints, as a Buddhist might say, the feeling of continuity of being a separate, unique entity is an illusory construction of your phenomenology, That casts in a completely different light how to approach rationality itself and and even self-interest, right? If you start identifying with the light of consciousness rather than your particular instantiation, you will probably care a lot more about what happens to pigs in factory farms because insofar as they're conscious, they are you in a fundamental way. It matters a lot in terms of how to carve out different possible futures Especially when you get into these very tricky situations like, well, what if there is mind melding or what if there is the possibility of making perfect copies of yourself? All of these edge cases are really problematic from the common sense view of identity, but they're not really a problem from an open individualist or empty individualist point of view. With all of this said, I do personally think there's probably a way of combining open individualism with valence realism. That gives rise to the next step in human rationality, where we're actually trying to really understand what the universe wants, so to speak. But I would say that there is a very tricky aspect here that has to do with a the game theory. We evolved to believe in closed individualism. I mean, the fact that it's evolutionarily adaptive, it's obviously not an argument for it being fundamentally true. But it does seem to be some kind of evolutionarily stable point to believe of yourself as who you can affect the most directly in a causal way. If you define your boundary that way, that basically gives you focus on the actual degrees of freedom that you do have. And if you think of a society of open individualists, everybody is altruistically, maximally contributing to the universal consciousness. And then you have one closed individualist who is just selfishly trying to maybe acquire power just for itself. You can imagine that one view would have a tremendous evolutionary advantage in that context. So I'm not one who just naively advocates for open individualism unreflectively. I think we still have to work out the game theory of it, how to make it evolutionarily stable and also how to make it ethical open question i do think it's important to think about and if you take consciousness very seriously especially within physicalism that usually will cast huge doubts on the common sense view of identity it doesn't seem like a very plausible view if you actually try to formalize consciousness
2: the game theory aspect is very interesting you can think of close individualism as something evolution has produced that allows an agent to coordinate very closely with its past and future selves. Maybe we can say a little bit about why we're not by default all empty individualists or open individualists. Empty individualism seems to have a problem where if every slice of conscious experience is its own thing, then why should you even coordinate with your past and future self? Because they're not the same as you. So that sort of leads to a problem of defection. And open individualism, if everything is the same being, so to speak, then yeah, as Andres mentioned, that allows free riders. If people are defecting, it doesn't allow altruistic punishment, or any way to stop the free riding. There's interesting game theory here, And it also just feeds into the question of how we define our identities in the age of AI, in the age of cloning, in the age of mind uploading. This gets very, very tricky very quickly. Depending on one's theory of identity, they're kind of opening themselves up to getting hacked in different ways. And so different theories of identity allow different forms of hacking.
1: Yeah, which could be sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. I would make the prediction that not necessarily open individualism in its full-fledged form, but a weaker sense of identity than closed individualism is likely going to be highly adaptive in the future, as people basically have the ability to modify their state of consciousness in much more radical ways. People who just identify with a narrow sense of identity will just be in their shells, not try to disturb the local attractor too much. That itself is not necessarily very advantageous if the things on offer are actually really good, both hedonically and intelligence-wise. I do suspect, basically, people who are somewhat more open to basically identify with consciousness or at least identify with a broader sense of identity They will be the people who will be doing more substantial progress, pushing the boundary and creating new cooperation and coordination technology.
0: Wow. Yeah, I love all that. Seeing closed individualism for what it was has had a tremendous impact on my life. And this whole question of identity, I think, is largely confused for a lot of people. At the beginning, you said that open individualism says that we are all one consciousness or something like this, right? For me in identity, I'd like to move beyond all distinctions of sameness or differenceness. To say like, oh, we're all one consciousness to me seems to say we're all one electromagnetism, which is really to say that consciousness is like an independent feature or property of, of the world. It's just sort of a ground part of the world. And when the world produces agents, consciousness is just sort of an empty, identityless property that comes along for the ride. The same way in which it would be nonsense to say, oh, I am these specific atoms, I am just the forces of nature that are bounded within my skin and body, that would be nonsense. In the same way in sense, what we were discussing with consciousness, there's the binding problem of the person, the discreteness of the person. Where does the person really begin or end? And it seems like these different kinds of individualism have, as you said, epistemic and functional use. But they also, in my view, create a ton of epistemic problems, ethical issues. And in terms of the valence theory, if qualia is actually something good or bad, then as David Pierce says, it's really just an epistemological problem that you don't have access to other brain states in order to see the self-intimating nature of what it's like to be that thing in that moment. There's a sense in which I want to reject all identity as arbitrary, and I want to do that in an ultimate way, but then in the conventional way... I agree with you guys that there are these functional and epistemic issues that closed individualism seems to remedy somewhat, and is why evolution, I guess, selected for it. It's good for gene propagation and being selfish. But once one sees AI as just a new method of instantiating bliss, it doesn't matter where the bliss is. Bliss is bliss, and there's no such thing as your bliss or anyone else's bliss. Bliss is like its own independent feature or property and you don't really begin or end anywhere. You are like an expression of a 13.7 billion year old system that's playing out. The universe is just peopling all of us at the same time. And when you get this view and you see you as just sort of like the super thin slice of the evolution of consciousness in life, for me it's like, why do I really need to propagate my information into the future? Like I really don't think there's anything particularly special about the information of anyone really that exists today. We want to sort of preserve all of the good stuff and propagate those in the future. But people who seek immortality through AI or seek any kind of continuation of what they believe to be their self is, I just see that all is misguided. And I see it as wasting potentially better futures by trying to bring Windows 7 into the world of Windows 10.
2: This all gets very, very muddy when we try to merge of human level psychological drives and concepts and adaptations with a fundamental physics level description of what is i don't have a clear answer i would say that yeah uh, it would be great to sort of identify with consciousness itself at the same time that's not necessarily super easy if you're suffering from depression or anxiety so I just think that this is going to be an ongoing negotiation within in society, and just hopefully we can figure out ways in which everyone can win.
1: There's an article I wrote, it's called a Consciousness Versus Replicators, and that kind of like gets to the heart of this issue. But I mean, that sounds a little bit kind of like good and evil, but it, but it really isn't. The, the true enemy here is replication for replication's sake. On the other hand, the only way in which we can ultimately benefit consciousness, at least in a plausible, evolutionarily stable way, is through replication. We need to find the balance between replication and benefit of consciousness that makes the whole system stable, good for consciousness, and resistant against the factors. I would like to say
2: that I really enjoy Max Tegmark's general frame of we live in this mathematical universe. One reframe of what we were just talking about in these terms are there are patterns which have to do with identity and have to do with valence and have to do with many other things. The grand goal is to understand what makes a pattern good or bad and to optimize our light cone for those sorts of patterns. This may have some counterintuitive things. I mean, maybe close individualism is actually a very adaptive thing in the long term. It builds robust societies could be that that's not true, but I just think that taking the mathematical frame and the long-term frame is a very generative approach.
0: Absolutely. Great. I just want to finish up here on two fun things. It seems like good and bad are real in your view. Do we live in heaven or hell?
2: (laughs) Um, A lot of quips that come to mind here. Hell is other people, (laughs) or nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. My pet theory, I should say, is that we live in something that is perhaps the closest to heaven as is physically possible. The best of all possible worlds.
0: Oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> feel that way, but uh, <laughs> well, why do you, why do you think know, that? Sure.
2: This kind of gets into the weeds of theories about consciousness. It's this idea that we tend to think of consciousness on a human scale. Is the human condition good or bad? Is the, the balance of human experience on the good end, the heavenly end, or the hellish end. If we do have an objective theory of consciousness, we should be able to point it at things that are not human and even things that are not biological. It may seem like a type error to do this, but we should be able to point it at stars and black holes and quantum fuzz. My pet theory, which is totally not validated, but it is falsifiable, and this kind of gets into Boston's simulation hypothesis, It could be that if we sort of tally up the good valence and the bad valence in the universe, that first of all, the human stuff might just be a rounding error. Most of the value and disvalue, the positive and negative valence, is found elsewhere, not in humanity. And second of all, I have this list in the last appendix of Principia Qualia, of, well, where could massive amounts of consciousness be hiding in a cosmological sense? I'm very suspicious that the Big Bang starts with a very symmetrical state. I'll just leave it there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in a kind of a utilitarian sense, if we want to get a sense of whether we live in a place closer to heaven or hell, we should actually get a good theory of consciousness and we should point it at things that are not humans and cosmological scale events or objects would be very interesting to point it at. This will give a much better, clearer answer as to whether we live in somewhere closer to heaven or hell than human intuition.
0: All right, great. Well, you guys have been super generous with your time, and I've, I've really enjoyed this and learned a lot. Is there anything else you guys would like to wrap up on?
2: Just I uh, would like to say, yeah, thank you so much for the interview and reaching out and making this happen. It's been really fun on the side too.
1: Yeah, I think wonderful questions. And it's it's very rare for an interviewer to have non-conventional views of uh, identity to begin with. So <laughs> it was really fun, really appreciated.
0: Would you guys like to go ahead and plug anything? What's the best place to follow you guys? Twitter, Facebook, blogs, website?
2: Our website is qualiaresearchinstitute.org. And we're working on getting a PayPal donate button set up. But in the meantime, you can send us some crypto. We're building out the organization, and if you want to read our stuff, a lot of it is linked from the website, and you can also read my stuff at my blog, opentheory.net, and Andreas is at qualiacomputing.com.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, or share it on your preferred social media platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the AI Alignment series.